Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, the writer says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. As we draw near to the end of the chapter in this great hall of faith, the writer is now going to focus our attention to something else. He's talked about the definition of faith. He's given us examples of faith. And when we come to the end of the chapter, he's going to list exploits of faith. These three verses cite some more heroes of the faith in brief in verses 32 and 33. And later the writer will talk about the faith of believers in general in verses 35 through 40. In this particular chapter, we read about four judges. We also will read about a prophet and a king. The four judges are living during a time of perhaps one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. They had experienced profound and deep rebellion. And those of you who are familiar with the book of Judges, remember there's a reoccurring theme in that book. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, the king that is mentioned is David, and the prophet is Samuel. And the writer of Hebrews has basically reminded us throughout the chapter, whether we're talking about Abel or Enoch or Noah or Abraham and Sarah, whether we look at Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or the parents of Moses and Moses, they've walked us through the history of the Jewish people. And we've discovered something that it really is a powerful picture of profiles of people who've lived their lives in faith. And the story of the Bible is really the stories of people who dared to believe in God, who in spite of the obstacles, in spite of culture, in spite of, of difficulties, in spite of personal feelings, in every circumstance they would find a way to go forward. In every case, faith triumphs and wins the victory. And the writer gives us a glimpse of the faithful who accepted responsibility, sometimes reluctantly and sometimes even imperfectly, but they believed God, the call of God, and with great courage they walked in faith. And once again, we discover something that heroic faith, courageous faith is rewarded in verses 33 through 34. Now, some of faith's victories are public. Some of them are private. Some of them seem very, very ordinary. Some of them seem miraculous. Some were delivered by faith. Others didn't escape so much, but were rather given grace. 
sufficient grace to bear the suffering, to bear the hardship. So what have we learned from the chapter so far? If we've learned nothing else, we've learned that God works through faith. But it's important that you understand something. God works through faith and he works through faith alone. But it's never a faith that remains alone. Exercising faith is the only way to please God. Exercising faith is the way to obtain God's blessing and approval. Faith is a gift from God through the word of God and through God's Holy Spirit. Faith isn't simply a feeling or a sentiment. Remember what sentiment is. It is emotion without commitment. Sentiment is like you go to the movies and it makes you cry and you leave the movie, but your life isn't changed. That's not faith. Faith isn't simply a feeling or a sentiment that we conjure up in ourselves through sheer willpower. Faith is confidence in God. It's confidence in God's word. It's confidence in God's savior, our savior. Remember, faith is tested. Remember that faith sometimes seems foolish but then it conquers in the end. And so look again in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. The writer hasn't run out of examples. He's run out of time. But guess what? I have plenty of time. What he's basically saying is it would simply take too long to cite all the examples that are given in the Bible of the triumphs of faith. But there is example after example after example. When I was a very little guy in elementary school, (laughs) I was in elementary school in 1962 and 1963. And there was a very famous short film that came out in a book. In 1957, there was a young senator from Massachusetts who wrote a short volume entitled Profiles in in Courage, and it would win him a Pulitzer Prize. This young senator from Massachusetts would become the president of the United States. And he... He wrote a book that profiled senators who defied the opinions of their party and defied their own constituents to do what they felt was right. And they suffered severe criticism and losses in popularity because of their actions. This senator from Massachusetts who would become the president of the United States would talk about liberty and he would talk about freedom and that sometimes liberty would be tested and freedom would be tested. He began the book and I read the book when I was in the fourth grade. It began with a quote from Edmund Burke on the courage of the English statesman Charles James Fox. And in his 1783 attack upon the tyranny of the East India Company in the House of Commons. And it set the stage for the book. Edmund Burke also wrote a letter to Charles James Fox 
dated October 8th, 1877. He wrote, People crushed by law have no hopes but from power. If laws are their enemies, they will be enemies to laws. And those who have much to hope and nothing to lose will always be dangerous. When I reread that and I thought about this particular passage. Because you see, there really is two kinds of people in the world. Those who have hope and those who do not have hope. And remember what hope is rooted and grounded in. It's connected to faith. And see, this particular passage of scripture connects the people of faith to the actions of faith. And he gives only a very brief attention. In the end, the leaders, by and large, that he lists demonstrate a sense of humility to God's calling for their life. They accepted the tremendous responsibility. They showed persistent courage. They trusted and they depended upon God. And then they conquered against all odds, incredible odds, unbelievable odds. And they overcame the obstacles. In the book Profiles in Courage, they overcame the obstacles in order to bring about freedom. In the Bible, they exercised faith because God's promises and God's plan was going to come true. When people make God and Christ and the gospel enemies, we seek first to win them, to love them. But make no mistake, we will oppose and resist all those who oppose And resist God's plan, God's land, God's seed. You see, the Bible has the reoccurring message. He loves you. The plan is going to unfold. The promises are going to be kept. Now, what's interesting in part in the people who are listed in this passage is in the shadow of the life of the four judges. In the shadow of the life of the man who would be king. In the shadow of the life of the prophet named Samuel. In those shadows, in the recesses, is a woman. Gideon's mother was a concubine who endangered him. Behind Barak was Deborah who encouraged him. Behind Samson was Delilah who enslaved him. Behind Jephthah was a daughter, a woman who ennobled him and taught him about love and about sacrifice and about devotion. And so in verse 32, when he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. He begins by mentioning Gideon, and we will only deal with each of these in absolute brevity. The story of Gideon is found in the book of Judges. He was always a, already a grown man when God called Gideon to serve in the role of judge and deliverer. And we find that out in Judges chapter 8, verse 20. 
He gained a reputation as a warrior and a soldier by resisting and fighting against the terrorist attacks of the Midianites. And that's in Judges chapter 6, verse 12. The terror attacks became so brutal and so frequent that people were in a state of hypervigilance and the people were forced, by the way, to build a protective wall just so that they could work inside of the wall in order to do the most mundane things like grow crops and have water and and continue in life. But an angel of the Lord called Gideon to leadership and to serve to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. Some of us know Gideon's story. Maybe some of you don't. You've never read the book of Judges. But in brief, let me remind you He felt unqualified. He was gripped with a profound sense of personal inadequacy and unworthiness. But the Lord offered Gideon assurance after assurance. And so what happened? Gideon finally believed the Lord and God gave Gideon a supernatural empowering by his Holy Spirit. Some of us remember Gideon's test and Gideon's call. He wasn't sure, it was it really him and was he supposed to be used by God and did God have a real plan for him? And so he puts out the very famous fleece. The idea that if God wants me to do it, he's going to supernaturally intervene and communicate with me. And and oddly enough, the fleece wasn't a, a testimony of Gideon's faith. It was a testimony of his unbelief. But even then, God said, I'll still use you, even though you're half-hearted and unbelieving. And once again, the Lord assured Gideon that he was chosen He was chosen to fight God's enemies and to save God's people. And Gideon believed God. And some of you remember that 30,000 or actually 32,000 troops came in order to fight in 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 a battle that was about to take place. And the 32,000 was pared down to 20,000 and then 10,000 and then 1,000. And until finally he, he whittled the army down to 300 hand-picked men. And Gideon confronted the enemy. And in Judges chapter 7 verse 1 it says, Arise for the Lord hath delivered not your hand the host of Midian. In other words, God proved that he could conquer with few. The timid were sent home. Those who were preoccupied with their own comfort were sent home. And remember, this all goes to the point of the test and the battle. God made do with what was left. And guess what? There are a lot of people who will identify themselves as Christians. They'll be Sunday Christians, or at worst, they'll be twice a year Christians. They'll show up and they'll pack every seat in this auditorium on Christmas and Easter twice. But remember what real faith is? It's tested faith. It's not when it's easy, it's when it's difficult. What made Gideon an outstanding leader? It was really faith in his outstanding Lord. And before he launched his campaign against the Midianites, he cried out to his hand-picked warriors in chapter 7, verse 15 of Judges, 
Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. He was a leader who encouraged people to get up and resist those who would oppress the people of God. And then he mentions Barak. Who is Barak? Well, his story is told in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. When the call came to save Israel, the Canaanites had been attacking and oppressing Israel for 20 years. The Canaanite army was led by a man named Cicero. And Barak's call to service came from the prophetess Deborah. Now, Barak was already a soldier, but once again he hesitated and he resisted, feeling inadequate, feeling incapable to embark on such a huge task. And Barak insisted that the prophetess Deborah go with him into the battle by his side. And when she agreed, Barak surrendered to the call of God for his life. And once again, like Gideon, Barak faced unbelievable odds. Cicero, the commander-in-chief of the Canaanites, had over 900 chariots of iron. Think tanks in the ancient world. He had a massive army. But Barak believed God and he attacked with only 10,000 men and he won an incredible victory. He didn't do it apart from God or without God, but rather because he believed God. And some have suggested that his invitation to invite Deborah into the camp or into the battle was because he didn't really believe God. Well, guess what? He did believe God. I want you to think for a moment what Barak believed about God. He believed that God loved his people and wanted to deliver God's people from their enemy. And again, some suggest that insisting that Deborah go with him was a sign of cowardice. But God saw that even in that small invitation, a willingness to engage in the battle, put his trust in God, that he would see him through. The next person that he talks about is Samson. This is the person we're most familiar with. Those of you who have ever gone to Sunday school or you've ever gone to the movies, chances are you know the story of Samson. His, it's found in Judges chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. The children of Israel were oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. Samson was raised as a Nazarite. He killed a lion on the way to a wedding. He killed 30 Philistines to pay off a clothing debt. And when Samson lost his wife, he burned the wheat fields of the Philistines. He killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He ripped off an iron gate at Gaza. He was betrayed into the hands of the Philistines by Delilah. He was shaven and blinded and slaved. He was supernaturally empowered to destroy more Philistines in their own temple by pilling, pulling down pillars from the side. And he died in the process. And by the way, we have only two recorded prayers of Samson in all of the Bible. Both are carnal. Both are self-centered. In Judges chapter 15 verse 18. In Judges chapter 16 verse 28. Samson in the course of his life violated. That means he broke every 
rule or every Nazarite vow. The Nazarites were prohibited from touching the dead. But he touches the carcass of a lion in chapter 14. They weren't supposed to drink. But he got drunk in chapter 14, verse 10. You're not supposed to cut your hair. But he allows his hair to be cut in chapter 16, verse 19. Every single vow that he made to God, he broke. He learned the high cost of low living. And so you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. How in the world does Samson get on this list? This is a guy with serious flaws. Serious weaknesses. And by the way, we don't see him repent of his carnal passions. We don't see him ever throughout the text going, hey, you know what? I broke all of my Nazarite vows and I'm really, really sorry I did. But the Bible pictures him as a man of faith and a man of courage and a man of valor. He single-handedly fights the Philistines and wins. He fights with strength and he's given repeated victory. And Matthew Henry makes this astonishing statement about him. True faith is acknowledged and accepted even when mingled with many failings. And this should cause each and every one of you to be filled with hope. In what way? Have you led a life of perfection? In submission? In obedience to God? Or can you look at times in your life where you said things and you did things that you're not completely proud of? You see, when you read the Bible and you look at Samson and you ask the question, how could God possibly use that person? Almost invariably, you're going to hear the Holy Spirit whisper in your ear, how in the world? Spirit possibly use you. And then you realize you mean the Holy Spirit can use me. Flawed, failed, weak, broken, imperfect, inconsistent. And then we read the next person, Jephthah. Jephthah lived during the time of the judges as well. His story is told in Judges chapter 10 and 11 and 12. He was the son of a harlot. That's sort of a polite term for a whore. He was taken from his mother at a very early age and raised by his father. And it would appear by everything that we can read in his story that he became taunted and abused. He was rejected by his family and he was rejected by his neighbors. But in spite of the taunting and the rejection by family and friends, in spite of the abuse, he decided that his life was going to be different and that he was going to be a mighty warrior. In his day, the oppressing nation at that time was Ammon. 
And the time of oppression lasted for 18 years, followed by six years of peace. And on the eve of the battle with Ammon, Jephthah made a foolish and rash vow to God. He basically prayed a very foolish prayer and made a very foolish promise. He promised that, that, that whatever came out after his victory, he would, and greeted him, he would offer it to the Lord. And tragically, his daughter met him. And scholars are split concerning how he actually fulfilled the vow. Some suggest that he really did kill his daughter. Others suggest that she was forced to live a life of celibacy. She would never, and which was a great, great tragedy in the Jewish culture. She would never have a husband. She would never have a life. She would never have a future. Later, Jephthah is provoked into battle with the jealous tribe of Ephraim. You think about this and you ask the question, well, what does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? And the point that I think that the writer is saying as he's appealing to the story of Jephthah is that faith can rise higher than the circumstances of our birth and the environment in which we grew up in. And some of you can look back on your life and maybe thank God, thank God you were raised by a mother and a father who loved you and who loved each other. But maybe you didn't have that experience. Maybe you had the experience where your father left your mother. Or you were abused and you were abandoned like Jephthah. And again, you wonder, well, wait a minute. Is the circumstances of my life and is the circumstances of my environment, is that going to determine my ability to be used by God? Or can I, by faith, ask a different question? Can God use me? Could God use somebody like me? Each and every one of us has a story. Some of you know my story. My father basically abandoned my mother and my brother. We, my mother took the worthless furniture that was in our house, sold it for a train ticket so that she could drive or, or ride from New Orleans, Louisiana, back to California where her parents were, but she didn't have enough money. So she bought a ticket for as far as she could go. And so we make it through Louisiana into Texas and then into New Mexico. My earliest memory is being on that train. My earliest memory is watching the conductor come down the aisle saying, tickets please, tickets please. And my mother burst into tears because she didn't have a ticket. She'd run out of money. She had nowhere to go. With a four-year-old child and a three-year-old child. And the conductor let us ride to Arizona. And then the conductor again let us ride to California. Imagine growing up in a world, a broken world, that is defined by what you think is the broken circumstances of your life. 
And then look what he, he says. He makes an appeal to a group of people who have lived under the most difficult of circumstances. And he mentions David. And by the way, we could easily talk about David for days. David was chosen by God to be the king of Israel. He was chosen a young shepherd boy. Tending the flock of his father in 1 Samuel 16, 11. The spirit of the Lord came upon David, it says in 1 Samuel 16, 13. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. By the way, in that chapter 16, the spirit comes upon David. The moment that the spirit comes upon David, the spirit, the Holy Spirit departs from Saul. David is called the shepherd of Israel. He's called the singer of Israel, the soldier, the sorrowful, the statesman, the sovereign. He is a man after God's own heart. And yet he's guilty of the most vile sin. He commits adultery. Not only does he commit adultery with Bathsheba, but he arranges to have her husband killed. The prophet Nathan confronts David about this and the king confesses and God forgives David, but there are still horrible consequences. Some people have wondered, well, wait a minute, did Saul do horrible things? Yes. Did David do horrible things? Yes. Why did God reject Saul but continue to accept David? Do you know what the difference is? The difference is David repented. David turned from his sin. You see, the reason why David was a man after God's own heart was because he was willing to turn from his sin and embrace the forgiveness and the hope that's found in the Lord. And that's the difference between being a man or a woman of God. Does God forgive David? Yes. Are there terrible consequences for David? His infant son will die in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 18. His daughter will be raped by his own son, Ammon, in chapter 13, of verse 14 of 2 Samuel. Ammon will be murdered by his half-brother and David's son, Absalom. You thought your family was messed up. David will write the Psalms. He'll kill a giant. He'll capture Zion. He will spend most of his life acting like a man of God, being true to the word of God, relying on the promises of God, executing the judgment of God. But there will be a dark moment, a profoundly disappointing moment. And it will haunt him forever. The Bible teaches that as a young boy, he faced a lion and a bear and a giant. He was feared and hated by Saul because Saul rebelled and disobeyed and was disqualified from his high office. And Saul pursued David for years trying to kill him. And David proved to be a man of extraordinary trust of resourcefulness in the wilderness. He would face trial after trial. He would defeat enemy after enemy. He would stretch the borders of Israel. He would prove faithful for most of his life. Again, except for that awful lapse of judgment with Bathsheba. David wrote 73 psalms. But God had a plan for him. 
God had a purpose for him. God was pushing the narrative of the story of redemption and forgiveness into the future. And then he lists Samuel. Samuel's story is told in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verses 19 and 21, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. It's an idiomatic expression that means when Samuel spoke, people listened. That when Samuel said, God has something to say, it in fact really was from God. In Samuel chapter 3, verse 19, it also says, And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh and revealed himself to Daniel or to, to, to Samuel. This is the, the Bible's way of saying, from the very north of the country to the very south of the country, everybody understood that Samuel was a person that was anointed and appointed by God to Speak the word of God for the people of God. And Samuel was called at an early age to serve God. His life was a miracle in and of itself. I've been to the very spot where Samuel's parents lived in Israel. Where Hannah came and prayed to God and cried her eyes out because she was barren and she couldn't have a child and she would weep and sob and the high priest would come to her because she was weeping and shaking and sobbing so much that he thought that she was drunk. And he goes, what kind of a lady are you coming to the, to the congregation of God drunk and stoned? And she goes, I'm not drunk and stoned. I'm sad because I can't have a child. And she made a vow and a promise that if God would open up her womb, that she would dedicate the child to the Lord. And God answered her prayer. Who is more gracious than Samuel? Who is more faithful than Samuel? Who is more generous than Samuel? Who is more zealous than Samuel? He's the last judge in the Bible, and he arguably is the first prophet. He finds Israel in a state of chaos. And he leaves it in the hands, the very capable hands of David. Wherever he goes, he speaks the word of God. He bears Saul's failure, an ultimate apostasy. He dies in peace, having seen God's salvation. In what way? In, in the way, in the sense that David becomes a type and a picture of his future famous son who, who will bring about a sense of peace and prosperity to the people of God. If we were to lie... Take the life of Samuel and just take one word to describe him. It would be faithful. Samuel was God's man at God's moment in God's time. When the priesthood was corrupt. When the country was marked by spiritual bankruptcy and apostasy. And he would hear from God. You see, you might be living in a time where nobody cares about the Bible. 
And they could care less what God has to say. They don't believe what the Bible says about sin or the problem of sin or the solution to sin. And the writer of Hebrews includes in that tiny little phrase at the end of the sentence, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and at the very end, and the prophets. He throws it in. This is the noble band of men who spoke for God, men who steeled their conscience. These are the men and women who would rather die than lie. They would rather die than lie. They would rather go to heaven with a good conscience than remain on the earth with a bad conscience. Why is the writer of Hebrews telling all of this? Remember what we've already learned? The Hebrews were in danger. The Hebrews were in danger. The Hebrews were in danger because the pain was so great and the persecution so great. It was so awful. It was so difficult. It was hard being a Jew in the ancient world and it was even harder being a Christian. And so they said, who needs this pain? Who needs this aggravation? Who needs this vilification? We're just going to go back to the religious construct where everybody accepted us. And the writer of Hebrews is, remember, reminding them. Remember why Jesus came. Remember, it's Jesus who loves you. That without Jesus, you can't have a right relationship with God. So now the writer is going to appeal to their exploits. He says in verse 33, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, Obtained promises. Stopped the mouth of lions. These are the exploits. It begins in brief with the heroic faith subdues kingdoms. In what way? Remember what the Bible says. Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, does Moses overcome Egypt and liberate the children of Israel through brute force and rebellion? Anyone who's read the Bible knows the answer is no. Are the children of Israel ever going to leave Egypt unless God delivers them? God's going to have to deliver them. And does God deliver them? Does he do it supernaturally through miracles? Does he do it through a sacrifice? He does. I want you to think about this for a moment. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Remember what we've already learned? Moses believed by faith that God was going to use him. Remember what it was like to be saved? Do you remember that moment in your life when God saved you? You see, the only way that you would be saved isn't through willpower or through a profound desire to be changed. In order to, for you to be saved, it's going to have to be by grace, through faith. God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to have to intervene in your life in order for you to be different. Moses subdues Egypt by the power of God. Joshua subdues the land of promise by the power of God. Daniel subdues Babylon and Persia. By both the power and promotion from within. 
Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel are all raised up by God to, do, to control the destinies of these empires for the purpose of accomplishing God's plan. What is God's plan? I really believe that minimum when the Bible says it's God's will that everybody gets saved, that none perish. Is it God's will that everybody's going to get saved? And is it going to be according to the plan? Well, guess what? Not everybody's going to be saved. God controls the destinies of empires. He raises people up and he brings people down. But what about you and what about your family? Why did God place you in the exact circumstance that God has placed you? Why did he place you in this family? And why did he place you in this community? And why did he place you in this time? Why did God entrust to you children and grandchildren? I'm going to suggest to you it's in order to impart to them the reality that there's a real God who really loves them and that, that, and that Jesus is, is the solution to the problem of sin. Heroic faith subdues kingdoms. Heroic faith works righteousness. Look what it says. The working of righteousness isn't simply the revelation of individual or personal virtues. Now remember, worked righteousness, depending on the context, righteousness can mean any number of things. When we think of righteousness, we usually mean what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. What I think that this writer means is that God is going to use men and women of faith to work righteousness in what sense? The ancient kings of Israel, were they mostly good or were they mostly bad? They were mostly bad. When you have a horrible example of parenting, when you have a horrible example of leadership in government, when you have a horrible example in the social, cultural, political, athletic realm, does it encourage other kinds of awful behavior? The Bible says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. Here's part of the point that I think that he's making. When the people of God, when the leaders of God, when the men and women of God actually believe God and obey God, it rubs off. The point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make when Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah believed God and obeyed God, they set examples of righteousness and they taught righteousness. They would wind up preaching righteousness, believing and obeying God works righteousness in our life. The truth, the chances are you're not going to get in trouble praying and crying your eyes out. The chances of you getting in trouble coming to church is pretty low. But what are the chances of getting in trouble out there? What are the chances of getting in trouble if you decide to go back to the bar or go back to the bottle or go back to the drugs or go back to the relationship or entertain something that isn't righteous. Now carry that thought to the next step. 
Believing and obeying God's work, God's promises and God's plan works righteousness in our lives. Then what happens? When God works righteousness in our lives, there is confidence and courage. And by the way, when you see people live their lives in confidence and in courage, does it provoke you to confidence and courage? I think that the answer is yes. Think of the lesson that we just learned in the last week as we hear the horrible and tragic news of a man who goes into a church and murders nine people. And then we hear the testimony of family after family after family confront the killer in an open court saying there is a God. He loves you if you'll turn from your sin, if you'll abandon this reckless wickedness and hatred. If you'll turn from your sin, if you'll embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, that there could be hope for you. I heard family member after family member confess to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of God and the power of a God to change people's life. But do you think that's what's in the news? No, it's the Confederate flag. Now, don't get me wrong. Are there symbols of hatred? And are there symbols of bigotry? Yes. But again, we live in a culture that for whatever reason wants to constantly substitute the symbol for the substance. And you see, people of substance are starting to come forward. People turn to the Lord and they begin to live their lives marked by righteousness when they observe other men and women living their lives marked by righteousness. And that's the point that the writer is making. And then also heroic faith obtains promises. In what way? This may mean that God made covenants with them as in the case of Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon. Or it may mean that they received fulfillment of the promises. In other words, the idea is God made promises to the men and women of faith. True or false? Yes, it's true. God kept his promises to the men and women of faith. That's true. Heroic faith stopped the mouth of lions. How can we not think of Daniel? From his youth, he stood with the word of God. Daniel refused to eat meat. He he refused to sacrifice to idols in his youth. He stood for God and with God in his youth. And then he stood for God and with God in his old age. Boldly, boldly taking his stand on the promise of God given to Jeremiah. Remember, people go, well, why was Daniel tossed into the lion's den? Most of you who know the story... Why was Daniel tossed into the lion's den? Pardon me? That's right. There was an order that was given. The king of Babylon was tricked into saying, Hey, almighty king, hey, let's pass a law that for a certain period of time, no one can petition anyone, great or small, God or deity, unless they petition you. And he goes, great idea, stupid king. 
And Daniel does what Daniel has always done. He prays. Again, remember, think about this. It was against the law to petition God. But David, or excuse me, Daniel will pray. But remember what he's praying. He isn't just simply praying like, I'm a Jew and that's what Jews do, they pray. Daniel's praying based on the revelation of God given in the book of Jeremiah that the children of Israel are going to be released from their captivity and that God is going to bring the release and he's going to cause it to take place. Israel and the children of Israel were in bondage. Daniel was seeking God's face at the end of the captivity And even the king knew it was a mistake. He knew it was a stupid mistake. And they put him in a den of lions, his punishment for breaking the law that required that no citizen of Babylon cry out to any deity other than the king to meet his needs. And imagine you living in a world where a government says to you, you can't cry out to God to meet your needs. The only person that you can trust to meet your needs is the government. See, you're laughing at the absurdity of such a thing. We're the government. You have to cry out to us to meet your need. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, then we're going to have to uh, close your church. We're going to have to shut you down. You do what you think is necessary. You do what you think is necessary. And look at verse 34. Quench the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. A heroic faith obtains promises. Heroic faith stops the mouth of lions. Heroic faith quenches the violence of fire. And again, this is an obvious reference to Daniel's friends who refused the king's demand to bow down to the idol of gold that was on the plain of Dura. And what was their choice? You'll remember that, they, that there was, in the book of Daniel, an invitation that was made, small and great, big and large, had to bow down to the idol. And you remember Daniel's friend's response, we're not going to do that. Okay, here are your choices. Apostasy, Burning. Apostasy. Burning. Burning. Apostasy. Apostasy. Burning. We choose burning. Don't you realize that the king can take your life? Remember their response? You know what? You can cast us into the flames and God may or may not deliver us, but either way we're delivered from you. No matter what weird and wicked thing you might be able in your mind to try and come up with to make my life miserable, I've already made my choice. And do you remember what happened? Quenched the violence of fire? When the children of Israel entered the fire, the only thing that the fire succeeded in doing was to burn away 
the chains that bound them. How hot must that have been? And like the fiery trials of pain and persecution, it only succeeds in accelerating our maturation and growth. And so the writer of Hebrews says that heroic faith escapes the edge of the sword. And by the way, David first faced the threat of Goliath's sword, then Saul's sword. Elijah escaped the hand of Jezebel's sword. Elisha, too, knew how to call on God for protection from the swords of the Syrian king. Testimony after testimony after testimony. Heroic faith brings strength out of weakness. Our heroes obtain strength out of weakness. In what way? Ehud was a left-handed man when he slew the king of Moab in Judges chapter 3 verse 12. Jael was a woman killed Sisera with a tent peg in Judges chapter 4. Gideon used a clay pot pitchers to defeat the Midians. Samson used the jawbone of a donkey to slay a thousand Philistines. What do all of those things have in common? God is using weak things, foolish things, broken things, things that you could never imagine that you could possibly use in a battle in order to obtain victory. And so the Bible says, don't worry about anything. The Bible says, pray about everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And what's more foolish than the gospel itself? Tell me again how you can have a right relationship with God. Well, if you'll turn from your sin and you'll trust Jesus, you could have a right relationship with God. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. But God has already chosen the weak things to obtain strength. It says that heroic faith grows valiant in the fight became valiant in battle. Biblical faith, heroic faith, is never contained to just a simple set of propositions or belief. Faith is acted out. Faith is not always a noun. In the passage, faith is a verb. It acts. Faith grants strength to act. Faith becomes something. Faith does something. And each of these instances that have been given throughout the chapter, Abel worships, Enoch walks, Noah is warned, Abraham and Sarah believe. They receive strength. They died in faith, receiving the promise. Remember, these aren't just deeply held religious convictions. It is the belief and then the acting on those beliefs over and over and over again. Faith grants us strength to act outside of ourself. This week on my radio program, I talked with a man who was imprisoned in Iran He was doing the work of ministry and they basically seized his passport and they put him in a room and they beat him for five hours and he said he was terrified. I asked him on the radio, 
in your book, you said it never occurred to you to trust God. And he said, that was right. Even though I was a Christian, and even though I was doing the work of a Christian, and even though I was overseas doing Christian work, it never even occurred to me. He said that, that faith didn't win out. He said, fear consumed me. I said, what did you do? He said, I'm ashamed to admit it. But I tried to kill myself in that little room. There was a sink there, and there was a towel And he said, I began to think about it. I was broken by fear. And I began to imagine how I could tie that towel in such a way that it would keep me on the sink so that I could drown myself and kill myself. And I tried it once. And then I tried it again. And I tried it a third time. And each time I failed. And he said, I tried it a fourth time. And I couldn't do it. I was too scared. And he said, then I had a vision. A bright light. Jesus showed up. He didn't judge me. He didn't condemn me. He didn't reprimand me. He simply gave me the strength. I was overcome by his love and by his power and by his presence. And the fear went away. That's exactly what the New Testament testifies, doesn't it? Perfect love casts out fear. The heroes of the faith experienced weakness and personal failure. And see again, this should tell you something. That faith doesn't cease to be faith because it's an adequate, deficient, fearful, or failed. George Horn wrote, quote, when men cease to be faithful to their God, he who expects to find them faithful to each other will be really disappointed. We're not all called to be successful, but we all are called to be faithful. Faithful to believe the promise of God found in Christ. Faithful to trust that he's going to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Remember, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers of these lessons of faith. Men doing what God required, believing the impossible, picking themselves up repeatedly, even after doing the unforgivable. The kind of faith that God desires is the kind of faith that sticks to the revelation, that sticks to the plan, that sticks to the promise, that sticks to the purpose, that God is going to fulfill his plan. He's going to save people. He's going to use you. He's going to empower you to walk in faith. When we return, I'm going to finish this chapter. 
and do a tiny little summation. But right now, we're going to have communion. And I ask only one thing, that you hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But in the meantime, let me pray for you just for a moment. Heavenly Father, I do pray for each man and each woman. Lord, I pray for that person who has looked at the text and, and the appeal that's made by the writer of Hebrews to people less than perfect. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us that in spite of setback, in spite of failure, in spite of personal weakness, in spite of personal inconsistency, that, Lord, we could be men and women of faith, not by holding on to the weakness or the failure or the inconsistency, but by letting it go and reminding us that in our weakness we can find strength in Christ. And in our failure, we can point to the success of Jesus. And in the reality that we're going to be less than what we had hoped. That we can be everything, everything, everything that we need to be in Christ. Loved. Forgiven. Accepted. Approved. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts even now. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for the sacrifice of Jesus, for the love of Jesus, for faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that even now, Lord, you would cause us to examine our hearts and the condition of our hearts and the state of our hearts. And if there's something that isn't exactly right, that, Lord, you would bring it to our attention so that we could, in the most expeditious fashion possible say I don't want this to be a part of my life anymore I need to have it gone and that Lord you would forgive us and wash us and cleanse us and then empower us to be men and women of faith that is confidence in the promises of God confidence in the word of God confidence in the son of God In Jesus' name, amen.